Greetings again, everyone. I'm sure all of you have been sharing with millions of other Americans in the last few days some of the very tearful and joyous welcoming ceremonies as the first few hundred of our young men and women have been coming back from the Persian Gulf. Uh, late last night, a group arrived back down here at uh, Fort Hood, I believe, several increments of some of the airborne divisions and others have been arriving in the state of Texas, and we follow that very closely on television. Yet, when you also see some of the reminders of what occurred in the Gulf, we have to realize that right now, while we're in this beautiful hall with a gorgeous East Texas sunny spring day outside, it looks, according to people who are over there on the site in Kuwait, like hell must look. If you could imagine driving from here to Dallas and just outside the city limits of Tyler discovering a gigantic, burgeoning, black, huge oil fire ballooning huge sooty clouds thousands of feet into the air, and just beyond that one, another one, and beyond that one, another one. And between now and Canton, you had counted 30 of them. Can you imagine how bad that would be? If we in East Texas were told that there were 30 oil wells on fire between here and Canton, how, how horrible we would feel if the wind shifted from the west and the northwest and were blowing it across Tyler and where we live. What about 60 of them? How about 160? Do you know that more than 600 oil wells are on fire in Kuwait today? It's already nighttime over there and they take pictures of them from all over the landscape. You see the flames at the base of them and then a the gigantic cloud that apparently just spreading out for literally hundreds and hundreds of miles. And all of that incredible destruction was ordered by just one man. He's still alive. Foreign journalists are being ordered out of, out of Iraq and we feel because it is that quite a number of Shiite Muslims and some of the regular army units are in conflict with the so-called elite Republican Guard in cities all over, Bag not just Baghdad, but Iraq, and spreading to Baghdad itself from Basra and uh, other places, Karbala, one of the holy cities, and some of the other cities along the Euphrates Valley, and that he has brought several divisions of his guard from the northern Turkish border to brutalize these people, and according to some of those people escaping the very last moment, from some of these cities in Iraq, there is a great deal of shooting going on, and who knows, he may turn his chemical weapons once again on his own people. You cannot help but feeling terribly sorry for the Iraqi people who were in a protracted war for eight years, losing perhaps a half million or more, more than a million died on both sides. Then a brief two-year respite and another terribly costly war, perhaps at least 100,000 of their people dead and maimed for life, many bodies that will never be discovered or found that just were blown up into so much red smoking meat in the midst of tanks and personnel carriers and bunkers out there in the desert, mothers who will never receive their sons back home, and an entire nation being absolutely brutalized by the orders of just one man. Time and again, my wife would look at each, we'd look at each other at television, we would say, look what just one man has brought to pass on this earth, the expenditure of billions of dollars. Many economies absolutely sick and virtually devastated as a result. 
that immense loss of life, the destruction of the infrastructure of the entire nation of Iraq. Just one man ordered all of this. One man gave the order to dynamite all of those 600 oil wells. Just one human being like you and I. I've reminded you of this scripture in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation in verse 4 many, many times. I want to just refer to it quickly in passing. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And we know that the beast is a man. In the second chapter of the book of Daniel, when you see the great image that was a part of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, then when Daniel began to interpret the dream, God had given him the interpretation, and he told Nebuchadnezzar what the golden head at the top of the image meant. He said, It is thou, O king, who art a king of kings, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. So king and kingdom were synonymous. Just one man is what Nebuchadnezzar was. Just one man. But his will... His vision, his ideas, his impulses, his whims, his fancy, what he wanted, what he desired, created a great city-state which eventually conquered all of the known territories so far as people knew, so that the inhabited earth that was really the known world at that time was all underneath his single rule which is why it was depicted as a great tree with all of these beasts feeding underneath this tree, and then the tree was lopped off and iron bands put around it during the time of his seven years' insanity. And once again, all of the commentaries agree that those four parts of that great image were symbolic of the four successive world-ruling empires of ancient Babylon, ruled by one man, of ancient Persia, ruled by one man, Cyrus, and his successors, and then along came Alexander the Great, just one man who conquered the known world by the time he was 33 years of age, followed by, eventually, a consortium of four people, four generals, who carved up what eventually, through attrition, religion, and warfare, became the Roman Empire, and later on the so-called Holy Roman Empire. The emperors of ancient Rome ruled with a tyrannical absolutism, which was so fearsome and so grotesque that at their leisure, at their fancy, or at their whim, human beings were thrown to be dismembered by lions and evil beasts for their entertainment. They have been known to literally put people to death because they brought them bad news. Presumably, Roman emperors would, at a whim, because they said, I don't like the way he ate his food, would order someone to be run through with a spear. Brutal beyond our ability to understand. So how does it happen that at the last moment in this modern nuclear age, this age of enlightenment, this age of instant global communication through satellites and where we in our living rooms can literally see what is happening in Baghdad a half a world away right while it's taking place, that modern people can worship the devil, because that's what the dragon means, which gave power unto the beast, and the beast is just one man, and they worship the beast. And what do they say as they worship the beast? They say, their slogan is, who is like unto the beast? Well, that means he is unique. It means that he is super powerful. It means that he is absolutely overwhelmingly magnificent, that he's the greatest. He is number one. He's the best. There, he, he has no peers, no equals. There is none that is like unto him. 
Now, I've talked time and again about military uniforms and all that. I won't go into that now because that's not my purpose. But it also has a military connotation because they say, who is able to make war with him? Only so many months ago, parading down the streets of Baghdad came huge, big scud launchers with those gigantic missiles aiming into the air with the helmeted soldiers, thousands and thousands of them with T-72s and T-64s and other types of tanks with their huge cannon stuck up into the air, and the RPGs and the armored personnel carriers of the APGs and thousands of troops, and they are swinging their arms like this. And everybody is so excited. And here is a military display. Saddam Hussein, they shriek. They invoke his name like he was a god. They say that when you arrive at Saddam International Airport, now I'm talking about before the bombing campaign, you immediately get out of the airport and you see huge pictures of Saddam, sometimes three and four and five stories high. People are wearing watches with Saddam, not Mickey Mouse, Saddam, on the dial. It's a wonder that coins don't bear his image, and maybe they do. Wherever school children are, they have little songs that they recite, and they wave little flags, and the songs are dedicated to Saddam. And the entire nation invokes and repeats his name repeatedly and repeatedly, so that this one man has that incredible amount of power. Jim Jones was only one man, wasn't he? We all remember that incredible, tragic story. He began with noble ideas. He began preaching the Bible. Yet later on in his last moments before he fled this country in trouble with the law and took his little group down to Guyana, he literally in one sermon closed the Bible, threw it at his feet, and spit on it, and said, I spit upon the Bible, and those people sat right there. Nobody moved. They had been so mesmerized, they had been so taken in, they had so absolved themselves of their own conscience, they had so utterly corrupted their personal sovereignty, they had so given away their character and their decision-making function as a human free moral agent, that he was their mind, he was their soul, he was their conscience, he was their motivating force. He was there sort of a god, if you will, because that is idolatry, you know, when you give your mind and your heart and your decision-making properties into the hands of someone else. I've been listening to a tape Mr. Dark gave me. I've only gotten through a part of the second uh, half of it, so I'm not really the good parts yet, called Voluntary Servitude, written way, way back, probably about the time of the French Revolution or shortly thereafter, by a Frenchman. And it's quite interesting because it, it begins with the premise that a dictator is only one man who may rule over millions. Now look how many there are who outnumber the dictator. And yet millions of human beings bend to his will. One man tells millions what to do. Yes, they do it. I remember an American journalist, a woman who worked for one of the major newspapers on the East Coast, who was in Nazi Germany just prior to the attack against Warsaw, perhaps shortly thereafter. And she once was talking to Hermann Goering. Now, Goering was a huge, big, uh, bulbous, kind of a 260-pound guy that was a former World War I ace who became the head of the Luftwaffe, Hitler's Air Force. Goering towered over Hitler 
Hitler was about my height, they're a little shorter, probably weighed about 160 or 70 pounds or less. And this woman had been in meetings where all of these other Nazis were around Hitler, and she noticed the obsequiousness and the sort of a fawning fear and so on, the deference that all of these men gave him. And she asked Goering, put it to him very straight, why are you afraid of Adolf Hitler? You're a lot bigger than he is. And Goering said, ah, but you've never seen the Fuhrer when he goes into one of his rages. Do you know that there are books, including William Shearer's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, a book that my father had that was in his bedside stand in England, I remember, about how to get and to seize power, books that actually list tactics and techniques that people will use of intimidation. Now, most people are non-controversial. Most people don't want to make a scene in a public place. Most people don't want to be embarrassed. Most people don't want to have someone fly right at them with a lot of a verbal abuse in front of a lot of other people. It embarrasses you to death. For a husband and a wife to suddenly get into a fight in a public place in a restaurant, it's just embarrassing beyond belief. Have you ever played bridge with a couple of partners that maybe got mad at each other? I have. It's very embarrassing. You never want to play in a, in a, in a bridge game where the husband and the wife are playing uh, as partners. Unless you've got a solid barrier underneath the table where they cannot kick each other in the shins. And, and if they absolutely just get so angry at each other that it becomes embarrassing, you know what I mean. We would rather uh, shrink, you know, shrink back from some kind of terrible public embarrassment. So someone who will literally use consciously the tactics of intimidation, who will begin to appear to be angry and who will begin to abuse you verbally, a bully, will nearly always succeed. Now, we all learn from the time of the boyhood playground, perhaps, that oftentimes bullies are only bullies as long as you don't stand up to them. And when you stand up to them and poke them in the face and bloody their nose, they're not a bully anymore. But the more they feed on their success, the bigger the bully they become. It's incredible that Jim Jones could have started out the way he did and actually have come to the attention of the first lady at that time, Mrs. Carter, with whom he had his picture taken in San Francisco when he was working among some of the poor and disenfranchised minorities, especially some of the blacks of that uh, part of, this, of the country. And he had his picture taken with a lot of very famous people. If you can imagine, Jim Jones and, and Mrs. Carter, Rosalind Carter, standing side by side, she approving what he was doing. He started out with some pretty noble ideas. He was preaching some truth out of the Bible here and there. How did it come to pass that in the last vestiges of his own venereal disease, when he knew he was going to die, and some of his henchmen had already killed one of America's, uh, I believe, a House of Representatives or a State Representative, I believe it was, but uh, some official in government, and he knew that they were going to come down and get him and extradite him, and he was going to have to go on trial, he decided to play out his own Gotterdammerung that I've talked to you about before, Hitler's fascination with the Wagnerian opera, which portrayed the end of the world, which Hitler, in a sense, portrayed himself as he was committing suicide in his Fuhrer bunker, saying the German people, millions of whom had died for him, were not worthy of him. So here's Jim Jones down there, knowing he's about to die, and deciding the time has come, and he's up there preaching and screeching and gesticulating away while they've laced arsenic in the soft drink, and his people get up one by one, mothers giving it to their babies, killing themselves, because 
one man said so. Let me tell you something very, very strong indeed. Out here in the United States on any given Sunday following my telecast are thousands of people who talk to each other in their clubs, lounges, and bars, in their homes and bedrooms. And they will tell someone who doesn't know that there is a man who is the leader of a cult, who is not even a Christian, who is dangerous, who is absolutely twisting and perverting the Bible, one of the rottenest guys you've ever known in your life, and his name is Garner Ted Armstrong. And other people say, oh, is that so? I didn't know that. Why, I never. Is that a fact? Oh, yeah, that's a fact. And it isn't at all, of course, but they believe it. There are people all over the United States who believe that I'm a terrible person. Now, on the other hand, I've been out here to dozens and dozens of personal appearance campaigns, and I've had people, men and women, come up to me that are meeting me for the very first time, grab my hand and stand there and be unable to talk. I've had people burst into tears and say, I, I'd rehearsed what I was going to say and I forgot. Now, that is embarrassing beyond belief to me. And I will always say, don't worry about it. Come on, it'll come to you. Don't worry about it. And, and try my best to put them at ease. They believe that there is a guy who is so close to God and who is so good and such a wonderful man, such a great preacher, and on and on, and his name is Garner Ted Armstrong. And they're just as wrong as the people at the other end of the spectrum. Neither is true. On the one hand, it's a false idea from a certain projected image. And on the other hand, it's a false idea from a certain projected image. And in neither case do I intend either to appear as the world's worst guy or the world's best guy. On neither occasion do I intend to project a false image. I don't intend to project anything to do with myself. But that's the way of television, isn't it? All of a sudden, what do you really know about General Schwarzkopf? Actually, almost nothing. What do you know about Pete Williams? What do you know about Colin Powell? What do you know about Dick Cheney? And yet every one of them are being discussed by the American media as a potential presidential or vice presidential candidate. Why? Because they have been in millions of Americans' living rooms by the dozens of hours for several months and they become household names, and millions know them, and millions of people admire them. I do, too. I admire Colin, uh, the, the general. I can't, now I, I should, uh, yeah, his name uh, escapes me at the moment. Dick Cheney, Colin Powell. Uh, and I think that the right people, the really intelligent, professional, key people, were in exactly the right place at the right time. And I shudder to think if Carter had been the president and John Tower had been the Secretary of Defense. I just can't believe what might have happened in the last three or four months. But uh, on the other hand, I think a lot of other Americans may have thought the same thing. But that doesn't necessarily make them presidential material, because we don't have the faintest idea what policies might be. Television and instant communications projects an image. It does not project a reality. It does not project the real person. It projects 30 minutes or 15 minutes or a few minutes in an interview of best foot forward, well-prepared, carefully spoken themes or material that that individual wishes to project at the time. Politicians are tremendous users of public information media. 
They play it like a delicious organ or instrument. They just absolutely play upon the general public to get across the message they want to get across. Many of you have seen some of the old documentaries of Adolf Hitler during World War II, standing up in the back of a Mercedes limousine, going through cities with garlands of flowers being thrown in the pathway of the automobile, women fainting, holding up little children, people screaming. I told you about being in St. Peter's in the Vatican and the Pope going by and people with their crucifixes and the rosaries out there screaming Viva Papa and fainting and trying to get up there to where they could just grab the hem of his garment or just hold an object in the air where he would make a sign over it and then it would be a precious object to them. And we think of Benito Mussolini. I think of him during World War II with that huge jutting jaw and the huge tasseled kind of uh, white uh, pheasant feather hat that he wore with the gold epaulets and everything strutting like a cock of the walk and talking in great huge slogans and rhetoric about the glories of Italy. We used to have jokes about, about uh, the Italians during World War II because of their lack of ability to fight, apparently. We said that their tanks only had one gear and it was reverse. And during World War II, when I grew up, the Italian army was not uh, held in very much repute. I want you to turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And we will go through this verse by verse, and look at the time setting of this prophecy, and also look at the type, at the antitype, at the analogy that is here, and wonder how it is that people can do the things that Jim Jones, Benito Mussolini, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, Adolf Hitler, and Saddam Hussein have done. How can someone torture another human being? I won't belabor that, but of course they have actually put to death, who knows, if you look at Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler together, perhaps some 70 million human beings died as a result of the whims and the fancies and the appetites and the ego of just those two men. For the eternal will have mercy on Jacob. Notice it begins with the prophecy of the restoration of Israel and the setting of the kingdom of God. And will yet choose Israel. This is not the time of the return only from Babylon under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, nor is it the time of the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 after the UN resolution permitted it. It is talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God ultimately. He will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land, and the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob, and the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the eternal for servants and handmaids, talking about Assyria and Egypt, as other prophecies show, and they shall take them captives whose captives they were. Point. When they returned to Babylon, that did not happen. I'm sorry, from Babylon to Israel. When they returned from Babylon under Cyrus, who was called Artaxerxes by the Greeks, and began to rebuild the wall, discovered the book and the Targums as they were, which were merely the Babylonish dialect uh, that had to be written so that they could understand, because in their seven years of captivity, a whole new two generations had come along, and they began to speak a dialectic Hebrew that was really a corrupt language, was not a, at all like the original Hebrew of their forefathers. And they had to have the law interpreted to them, as you read, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah of what happened when they came back. They did not come back to the land of Israel with Babylonians as their captives at all. Babylon had been completely subjugated years before by Persia, nor did they bring a lot of Persians with them. This is a prophecy which has not occurred yet. 
It's a prophecy for the future. They shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Eternal shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve, that you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, the king of Babylon was ancient Nebuchadnezzar. How then, since Nebuchadnezzar was long since dead and in his grave, and five other Babylonian kings lived during the lifetime of Daniel, and Daniel was now dead, and Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede had actually changed the course of the river and walked underneath the city gates of Babel and Dryshod and taken the city in the very night of Belshazzar's idolatrous festival, how then is it that they will say, how has the oppressor ceased, meaning the king of Babylon at the time of their restoration? Doesn't fit, does it? That's because this is a future typical king of Babylon who is the beast. Why does it say in the 17th and 18th chapters of the book of Revelation where it's talking about Babylon the Great and then later on in the first part of the 18th chapter where the angel comes down and says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and has become the hold of every evil beast and every evil spirit and so on and is going to lie desolate. Why does the great angel coming down repeat twice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen? Well, because when John wrote that prophecy in about 92 A.D., Babylon had lain absolutely desolate and a wilderness, the walls broken down, not one habitable house remaining in it, until Saddam Hussein himself began to spend billions of dollars to begin a, a restoration to turn those rubble, that rubble and ruin into a tourist attraction where you can go, well, you can't now, but I mean, people could have gone and visited it. So that when John wrote those words, Babylon had already fallen clear back in 539 B.C., and John was writing almost 700 years later, wasn't he? And Babylon had already fallen. That's why the angel repeated it twice. Because you hear of a city in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation which is called Babylon and which is called the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And that great city, which is where the Babylonian mystery religion is extant, is called a city of seven hills, an eternal city, a great false prophet who is depicted in the 47th chapter of Isaiah as a woman who is the consort of the beast who says, I shall not know widowhood nor the loss of children, but the prophecy says these two things shall come upon thee in one day. So this is really dealing with the beast, the last king of Babylon, a type of the king of Babylon, who is going to be destroyed by Jesus Christ at his coming. Now, remember that the last part of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, which we have covered here in recent weeks, depicts Christ coming to this earth as a conquering king of kings and lord of lords, and the first thing he is going to do as he arrives on Mount Zion is to take hold of the beast and the false prophet and to walk them kicking and screaming to a, parap a parapet or a precipice down in the bottom of which a fire is going to be burning. It's a garbage dump called Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, and it depicted Gehenna fire in Christ's own prophecies and in his parables. It's named after a family name, Hinnom, and was known as Gina or Hinnom, which was merely a Hebraic form of that family name, and is in the Bible Gehenna fire, because it was a perpetual fire that continually burnt and never went out. It was fed by the rubble and 
the dead bodies of animals or of criminals and of refuse that was continually dumped over in it, just like some old city dumps way back in the 30s and 40s just burnt continually. Christ himself is going to throw them into that horrible, yawning maw of smoke and flame. But look what happens when he does, because we will see the two will complement each other from the 14th chapter of Isaiah and the 19th chapter of Revelation. This proverb will be taken up, How has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased, the eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers, he who smote the people in wrath. Interesting language about a despot, isn't it? The final beast power, who in one sense of the word is epitomized by all of the little dictators that have come along in this world, from Jim Jones to Saddam Hussein to Adolf Hitler to Benito Mussolini to Joseph Stalin, to the ones who will yet arise in Central Europe. They are people who seem to enjoy smiting their own people with a continual stroke. They're thugs. They are brutes. They are torturers. They are criminals. They are murderers. He that ruled the nations in anger. Ever know anybody who ruled in anger all the time? Oh, you're in terror. You don't, you don't want to get this guy crossways with you. You don't want to say anything to, to, you know, cause him to become wrathful. So here's great big Herman Goering saying this little newspaper reporter, explaining why he's afraid of Hitler. Ah, oh, but you've never seen Der Fuhrer in one of his rages. What would have happened if, if Goering would have stood up right while Adolf Hitler, all foam flecked and screeching, tearing his hair and pounding all the pulpit, had just grabbed him by his necktie, yanked him off his feet, jerked him up like this and said, Look, you little so-and-so, don't you ever abuse me like that again. Shove him back in his seat. Well, Goering would have been the head of state. Hitler would have cried. Hitler would have said, Oh, don't hit me. Don't hit me, Herman. I've always loved you, Herman. I'm so sorry I... Hurt your feelings, Herman. Why, Hitler would have dissolved in tears. And the rest of the generals standing around would have applauded. Many of them tried to kill him. Some of the people around him hated him. Many of them were engaged in conspiracies trying to blow him to bits. But they just didn't know who was loyal and who wasn't loyal. And so because dictators always, always surround themselves with the Praetorian Guard and certain lieutenants, and if you read that book I told you about, by the two Time Life reporters, a couple of women, I've forgotten their name, that put it out very, very early on after August, Saddam Hussein and the Crisis in the Gulf, which goes back through his boyhood and his early education and his sort of a, a hegira, you might call it, down to Egypt, and how he ran back to share in the takeover of government when the machine gun quasi him down and became the torturer in the palace and so on, how he got all of his own clan from the little town where he grew up called Takrit, and they are cousins and half-brothers and uncles and distant relatives and their friends. And it was a group of people basic, basically among the Sunni minority and the peasantry who didn't have qualifications. So the Johnny-come-latelys, the ungifted, the uh, uneducated, the semi-literate, were the people that Saddam Hussein put around him. Intellectuals were suspect. Artists, lawyers... Uh, professional politicians, even his own military generals, people with a college education, boy, he was afraid of them. Uh, he was, well, dictators are afraid of everybody, aren't they? I mean, one of the absolute given uh, qualities of a dictator is that they are, to a man, paranoid. 
One of the greatest intelligence coups in the history of the world, you ought to read that in The Man Called Intrepid, if you never read that book, was when the German secret agency, I've forgotten its name, and the gentleman who was over it at that time, gentleman I say, he was probably a brute and a murderer too, nevertheless managed to plant a letter on a body that was picked up supposedly as an internal memorandum between the general staff of the highest officer corps in the Russian army. And it was deliberately leaked. It was a forged document, had no basis in truth at all, but it was deliberately leaked to make sure that Stalin would get it. And Stalin did. And this book documents that over 5,000 officers, all the way down to the rank of like lieutenant and captain, from major on up to every one of the generals, just before World War II was really about to start, Stalin murdered over 5,000 of his entire officer corps on the basis of a forged letter the Germans deliberately leaked to make him think it had authenticity because of his paranoia. Can you imagine people who served him with all their hearts, who loved the man, who were patriotic Russians who believed in the Rodina, as they call it, Mother Russia, were stood against the wall and died with long live Stalin, long live Russia on their lips. They were innocent, but Stalin believed in the conspiracy, and there wasn't any conspiracy. Such are the machinations one man when he has total power. This man will have total power. It says, He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and unhinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing, obviously a type of the beginning of the millennium. You could not have this scripture portraying what would happen in Jerusalem and Palestine until the second coming of Christ. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us, no one to cut us down, no one to ravage the landscape. Maybe again it's talking about some despot who is a, an ecological uh, vandal as well. Now notice, hell from beneath, this is a prophecy that is repeated in the New Testament, the grave, or Sheol, in this case out of the Hebrew, is moved up to meet thee at thy coming, it stirs up the dead for thee, an obvious reference to the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52. So the time setting of this prophecy is obviously dual. It is not only in reference to the ancient king of Babylon and the release of the Israelites, or the Judish, uh, uh, should say the house of Judah, not the Israelites, at that time, and coming back into their own land, but it's also at the time of the second coming of Christ. Even the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations, all that shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Now, think about the scene. Maybe some of you are too young to remember it. Maybe it's been repeated in documentaries, but I saw it over and over and over again at the end of World War II. Here was Benito Mussolini, who had been shot by some partisans in his own country, and his body had been so beaten by the mob that had come by, he had been hung by his feet upside down with only, I think, a pair of shorts on, if that. And here was just a body hanging there, just like a side of beef in a cooler, except that it was punctured with blue bullet holes, 
and hideous wounds, stab wounds, and I don't know if there was a bone in that body that wasn't soft and mushy like a marshmallow that hadn't been broken. And you saw this body and people going by and spitting on it and hitting it, and he was hanging there and swinging from the parapet of a service station, just a flaccid, chalky white, huge big old belly, just an ugly human corpse who only months earlier had strutted out onto a balcony with a huge peaked cap with huge white feathers on it, with his chin jutting into the air, screaming of the greatness of Italy to a million people who adored him. Now, as you remember that scene, look what this says here. Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials, the great martial music and the concerts, the worm is spread under thee, and worms cover thee. Here's a corpse with maggots crawling around on it. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Interesting, isn't it? Now, we all know, and we've used for years, the 28th chapter of Ezekiel and the 14th chapter of Isaiah to show the origin of the devil, that a great fallen archangel named Lucifer that was right at the throne of God was cast back down to this earth. Is it an accident that he is a type of the king of Babylon, or is it that during Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, and perhaps even before, Satan the devil possessed him? Did Satan the devil know Adolf Hitler? Does the devil know what's going on? Where was the devil in pre-creation? But if you read in the book of Isaiah 45, verse 18, and other scriptures where it says the world was not created to you, yet it says in Genesis 1-1, the world became to you, meaning vain, void, empty, waste, uninhabited, beneath tossing seas. But the eternal created it perfectly. It was made to be inhabited, says the prophecy in Isaiah. So internal evidence in the Bible itself says, and other commentaries will show you that the word is not the world was void and waste, but became void and waste. And the individual who made it so was Satan, the devil, who attempted to overthrow God from his throne. There was a great Star Wars, and that would take 20 minutes to even begin to describe it. I don't have the time, but I've done it elsewhere, and you can have the brochure on Satan's greatest deception and other things about Satanism and about what you ought to know about demon possession and etc. Where has the devil been when great events were rocking the world? He was there at the destruction of the universe before creation, recreation week in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he was right there in the garden, and he appeared to Eve as a nakash. The Hebrew word nakash says nothing, believe it or not, about physiognomy. It doesn't even give you a clue. But this prophecy, and Ezekiel 28, that he was the cherub that covereth, talking about a cherubim, may give you a clue. But the word nakash merely meant whispering charmer. It means a charming, engaging, magnetic, whispering, I've got a secret person who would sort of charm you. You look it up, even in the exhaustive concordance, uh, Strong's, Young's, or anything else, and you'll find out I'm right. The Hebrew word nakash that is translated serpent could be rendered just charming creature or whispering charmer or whispering, charming creature. doesn't say anything at all about how he looked. It's talking about his character and the kind of a personality that appeared to Eve. So Satan the devil is right there in the Garden of Eden to try to wreck God's creation. Job was the most righteous man on earth at that time, and Satan tried to overthrow him. 
at the birth of Christ, Satan actually influenced Herod to commit genocide against precious little babies. And who knows how many thousands of children from two years of age and right down to one day were murdered by that rotten butcher trying to kill Christ. And then when Christ was baptized, immediately Satan the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and up to a high mountain, Haramon, we think, and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and tried to overthrow him with hunger, with vanity, with trying to appeal to some kind of nature to get Satan, I'm, I'm sorry, Satan trying to get Christ to stumble and to sin. Now there is a new doctrine extant that I won't take much time with, but I want to at least let you know about it because it's incredible heresy that states that it was impossible for Jesus Christ to sin. Now, if it was impossible for him to sin, if he couldn't sin, then why did he struggle? Why did he pray until the sweat just poured off his brow? Why did he fast? Why did he miss a single meal? Why did he fight himself? Why does it say in the book of Hebrews, he learned by the things which he suffered? Why did he himself describe himself as an overcomer? Why did he say he had finished the work? Why did he say that he had obeyed what his father said? Why did he always give his father credit for everything? If Christ was like the weightlifting champion of the world with biceps that big around that could pick up a 100-pound weight in one hand like that and just stand there and wave it around, so far as salvation is concerned, it was easy for him. He just walked through life impossible for him to sin, and then laid down his life, and he wasn't tempted at all to try to work it out another way. So, so why did he fall headlong three times and say, Father, if there's any way to work it out differently, please do it. I don't know if I can handle this or not. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There is another deadly heresy being taught, which would literally mean you don't have a Savior. Because it's not impossible for you or for me to sin. It's extremely possible. And probably in some small way or another, even when we're trying to do our very best, we sin every day. But the Bible says very clearly that Jesus Christ of Nazareth overcame, that he learned by the things which he suffered, that it was possible for him to sin, but that he willed not and that he had to continually fill up that reservoir, if you want to look at it that way, of God's Holy Spirit, because God's Holy Spirit flows in power from the Father through us and back out toward others and toward God in good deeds. It's exactly like these incandescent lights. There is not some residual power that stops right at the ceiling. There is a little kind of a cord you can hardly see that comes down. And there is energy flowing. It's flowing circuitously, continually, from its source and back to that source, lighting up a little element and giving heat. And so it is with God's Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ of Nazareth had the Spirit of God from the womb, from conception, without measure. Yet he had to get up early in the pre-dawn darkness and continually pray to God to keep the reservoir, if you want to look at it in that analogy, of God's Holy Spirit full so that he had the power to withstand the terrible temptations that came at him on a daily basis. The doctrine that Jesus could not sin is rank heresy and is not of God at all. But people are being taught that that is so. Now, here's the type of Satan the devil. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, that is the grave. So actually right there it shades back into the type of the king of Babylon. Point. It's not just an awkward insertion of scriptures about the devil and his origin and his supreme battle way back when with God the Father trying to upseat him that we find this in connection with the king of Babylon. It's because I believe he was perhaps either directly influencing or possessing the king of Babylon. And that says to me, because I see in the book of Revelation, that there are unclean spirits like frogs that come out of the beast and a false prophet and go out to gather the kings of the world to the great battle of Armageddon, or the day of God Almighty, as it says during the seven last plagues in the book of Revelation that Satan the devil will once again be right on the spot where the greatest world events are taking place. And when the Bible depicts that the beast and his armies are going to fight Christ at his coming, it seems to imply that Satan the devil himself will be there to influence, if not to possess, those human beings, the beast and the false prophet, who are going to be the pivotal figures in that final battle. And Christ himself is going to grab them and throw them into a Gehenna fire. Now notice the description, bearing in mind what I told you about Mussolini. You shall be brought down to the grave, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. That's squinting your eyes or maybe even borrowing somebody's binoculars and looking and peering narrowly, trying to study the details. And consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Think of the contrast. On the one hand, they worship the beast, and they said, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Giant columns of tanks, of missiles, an overflight of thousands of aircraft, Super powerful technology. Is there anything that excites and inspires the mind more than snapping flags and banners and stamping feet and coal scuttle helmets and German martial music and epaulets and badges and gold braid and the snouts of huge cannon and troops with their rifles marching by a hundred thousand of them at a time? Don't hearts swell and people get tears in their eyes and their heart beats faster? When they say, look at this demonstration of power, and look at our wonderful leader, the great dictator standing up there, saluting the troops as they go by, with the gold flashing on his cap and the epaulets, dressed in a field marshal's uniform. Here he is naked, a bloated, chalky white, absolute beaten, shot, stabbed, spit upon, corpse, with worms crawling around. And people are looking down and saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? I was afraid of that. Think about it. Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Politically. Militarily. It says, Perfect love casts out fear. 
The Apostle Paul said, I will not fear what man can do unto me. Christ said, a man can't do anything. He can only kill the body, but he cannot kill the soul, meaning that new creature in Christ, the spiritual new little creature in Christ that is begotten inside of us that is beyond the reach of a human being, of a sword, a knife, a bullet, or a bomb. And that after they kill the body, there's nothing they can do. You are safe in God's hands, for your life is hid with Christ in God. So you're not to fear. But I can tell you there are people today who fear. Fear political leaders. Fear military leaders. There are tens of thousands of poor, pitiful people over in Iraq today who are in terror of their lives of just one man. And yes, there are people in churches who live in fear. Who do you fear? Now, the whole subject of salvation has to do with the building of character. It has to do with personal choice. It has to do with the inviolable sovereignty of the individual. It has to do with you on your knees in the complete privacy of your closet, praying to the same Jesus Christ that I worship. And you know what? You don't have to come and get my permission. Isn't that amazing? I don't know a thing about it. Guess what? Some of you have been praying to Almighty God in the name of Jesus Christ, and I don't even know about it. Larry didn't know about it. Ron doesn't know about it. Charlie or Bronson doesn't know about it. Nobody does. You just get on your knees, and guess what? Christ turns to God the Father and says, Father, hear this person, because this I understand what they're going through. I, I empathize with this prayer. We don't sell indulgences. We don't take confessions. You don't go through us. You are sovereign. You are an individual with choices and decisions to make. Now think if every decision is made for you by a religious organization, on down to basically what kind of a hairdo you ladies ought to have, what you can wear to church, the length of your pants, whether a man can enjoy facial hair, as some of you do and some of us don't, uh, whether you can wear a toupee if you're bald, whether you ought to drive a, drive a red truck or a blue truck, whether you ought to be able to drive a, a Coke truck if you happen to have as one of your stops en route a military base, for pity's sake. How are you going to be able to rule and to make decisions if you've never made decisions to begin with? If every single thing you're supposed to think, say, and do is charted out for you. You know, there's a great difference between the American military and the military of Germany and Japan, for example, the military of Saddam Hussein. You know what one of the great differences is? What we call Yankee ingenuity, and that is the individuality and the initiative, the personal initiative of a person on the battlefield all the way down to the level of a corporal over a couple of privates that says, let's do it this way. Let's go over there. But the Iraqis are hunkered down sitting there. We're going to do it according to communist doctrine. We're bunkered down with the barrels facing that way, and we're staying here. And they had no initiative because their leader didn't allow it. Oftentimes there are leaders who do not allow initiative, who do not allow differences. You know, as a human family, isn't it pitiful that so many millions of people are fearful of other people who are a different color, wear different clothing, speak different languages, when instead they ought to be curious, excited, fascinated, and they ought to love them because of their differences, not in spite of them. 
because they are different, they ought to be interesting, and we ought to get to know about them and understand them and love them because not everybody's the same. I'd go crazy if I were Japanese. I'm wrong. I, I just think that all Japanese look alike. I'm sure they don't really, but they do to me. I can't see. If I'm on the street in Tokyo and they're Japanese and a couple of Koreans coming, every one of those Japanese know that those are Koreans. I do not have the faintest idea that that's a Korean and that's a Japanese. I cannot tell the difference. But the Japanese can. But you know what's crazy? The Japanese call us long noses and the Indians used to call us white eyes. The Japanese think we got long noses, and boy, do we, some of us. But they think, you know that the Japanese think that all Americans look alike? When they see a whole bunch of Americans in a picture, the Japanese think, boy, they all look alike. We really don't. We all look very, very different. It's too bad we can't love people because of our differences, not in spite of them, but because of them. But isn't this a fascinating analogy, that here is this one individual who holds such incredible sway over everyone that they march to a single tune. They have but one slogan, one banner, one flag. They have one individual to whom they are completely in terror, fear, awe, adulation, adoration. The little children are singing his name. Even during this battle, there were two brand new songs about what a glorious, great military genius and what a victory they have won. And to this day, there are areas over there, certain neighborhoods in Baghdad that don't know that they have been smashed as a military power, that perhaps more than a 100,000 of them are dead, and that defeated, beleaguered, frightened troops are sneaking back home in fear of their lives and are still out there talking in the coffee shops about what a great victory Saddam Hussein, yay Saddam, has won over 39 different nations. Saddam Hussein stood up and fought the whole world to a standstill, and according to their press, our troops were swimming in their own blood, and there have been convoys of coffins coming home, and thousands Thousands of us are dead, and hundreds of our aircraft have been shot down, and they have won a great victory because they believe everything one man tells them. How private and how important to you is your own conscience? That's a whole different subject. I won't bring it up now and, and go into it in great detail, except one little illustration I remember from years ago that taught me quite a lesson. As the years went by, it has been a very good lesson to remember, and I will relate it to you now. Early on in this work, in the 1950s, not long after I was ordained, the entire emphasis was on rank and government, power and authority, Ananias and Sapphira. People told the truth to ministers, or horrible things happened. Well, not really. There were probably a lot of folks who got away with lying to a minister, and the minister didn't know about it, and they didn't get... The, the Ananias and Spira treatment, nobody carried their bodies out, but there was that constant threat. I remember when we would schedule people up in the big tabernacle building, Big Sandy, as counselors, and I was on duty, and a little lady came in to counsel about something. I've long since forgotten her name, and I've forgotten what it was she wanted to talk about. But it had something to do with some interpersonal problem, and she had a confidence that she'd promised a friend. And I thought, well, now that's vital information I need to know to be able to help this little lady solve her problem. She said, oh, no, but I can't tell you that because I promised my friend I never would. I said, oh, yeah, oh sure you can. You can tell me. That's all right. I'm a minister. <clears throat> I'm a minister, so you can tell me. I was probably 26, 27. And, uh, oh, no, I, I'm sorry. I can't tell you because I promised, you see, my friend. I gave her my word that I would not. 
Oh, that's all right. I'm, I'm setting that aside now, and you can tell. I forget which way I came at it. That little lady stood her ground until I got pretty angry with her. And she never did tell me what she promised not to say. And she was right, and I was wrong. I know that. I didn't know it the next year, or the year after that, or the year after that, but somewhere five, six, eight years, a little later, I knew I was wrong. And I've known ever since I was wrong. And of course, I've never done it again. You have the right to a confidence, and you have a right to privacy, because you are sovereign, because you are precious in God's sight, because you're his child, and he loves you, and you are to have an intimate relationship with God through Christ, not through some human being. Now, on reflection, as you look at this, of a man that we do not know, we don't know who he is, but I know he must be alive, who is going to become the beast of prophecy and the false prophet, and Christ is going to give them exactly their just desserts when he arrives to this earth, finally, and they are going to be responsible for who knows how many millions of human beings dying before it's all over. And the contrast, the shocking contrast of a person who absolutely elicits worship in his great field marshal's uniform, lying there as a bloated, worm-eaten, maybe bullet-riddled body, I don't know, maybe no bullets in this case because Christ is going to toss them over there himself. People narrowly looking upon him and saying, is this the man that made whole nations to tremble in fear? And he's just a flaccid, white, blubbery corpse lying there. And when he was alive, he put his pants on one leg at a time, and he sweat, and he drank, and he ate, and he had to go to the potty in the morning just like we do. And he was just one man. Tonight, and it's night over there now, there's 600 oil wells burning. Just one man ordered all of that. This whole war that, that dislocated over a half million young Americans, and at least about 150 of them are never coming home again. And that's very, very sad because one was way too many. But at least, thank God, our losses were very, very small. And I hope all of you joined George Bush when he told us to pray. My wife and I don't pray together audibly very often. We sure did on that night and asked God to give us a victory and said that as near as we can tell, this is a just war. If it ever was, if I've ever known of a just war for a just and a good cause, this was it. I think we stopped short of what the goal should have been, and I think that rotten character is over there butchering and shooting his own people, and I hate to think about that. And hopefully they will have the strength to be able to somehow overthrow him and do him in, which is what he deserves. But don't you ever give up your personal sovereignty. Don't you stand in awe or in fear of me or anybody else, because I'm just one man. Adolf Hitler was just one man. Look what he did to the world. Saddam Hussein is just one man. And the beast of biblical prophecy is just one man. But you know, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was just one man, and he came here in the flesh just like we are, and he could have sinned, but he willed not to, and he wouldn't sin because of character and because of the sovereignty of that individual and because his mind was made up and because he continually prayed to God for the strength even when he felt tempted 
and therein we have a Savior. Now, there's someone you can worship. There's someone you can adore. There's somebody, even though you've never met him, you don't even really know what he looks like. You can't have the projection of an image with billboards seven stories high. You can't have a wristwatch that has his picture on it. You don't really know what his physiognomy was like. But there, and he was just one man, goes someone I can worship. 